Chapter Eight of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We move again. One day there came into our home a strange man who spoke in a fashion new to me. He was a middle-aged, rather formal individual, dressed in a rough gray suit, and father alluded to him privately as that English Duke. I didn't know exactly what he meant by this, but our visitor's talk gave me a vague notion of the old country. My home, he said, is near Manchester. I have come to try farming in the American wilderness. He was kindly and did his best to be democratic, but we children stood away from him, wondering what he was doing in our house. My mother disliked him from the start, for as he took his seat at our dinner table, he drew from his pocket a case in which he carried a silver fork and spoon and a silver-handled knife. Our cutlery was not good enough for him. Every family that we knew at that time used three-tined steel forks, and my mother naturally resented the implied criticism of her tableware. I heard her say to my father, "'If our ways don't suit your English friend, he'd better go somewhere else for his meals.' This fastidious pioneer also carried a revolver, for he believed that having penetrated far into a dangerous country, he was in danger, and I am not at all sure but that he was right, for the Minnesota woods at this time were filled with horse-thieves and counterfeiters, and it was known that many of these land-hunting Englishmen carried large sums of gold on their persons. We resented our guest still more when we found that he was trying to buy our lovely farm and that father was already half persuaded. We loved this farm. We loved the log house and the oaks which sheltered it, and we especially valued the glorious spring and the plum trees which stood near it. But father was still dreaming of the free lands of the farther west, and early in March he sold to the Englishman and moved us all to a rented place some six miles directly west in the township of Burr Oak. This was but a temporary lodging, a kind of camping place, for no sooner were his fields seated than he set forth once again with a covered wagon, eager to explore the open country to the north and west of us. The wood and prairie land of Winnesheek County did not satisfy him. Although it seemed to me then, as it does now, the fulfillment of his vision, the realization of our song. For several weeks he traveled through southern Minnesota and northern Iowa, always in search of the perfect farm, and when he returned, just before harvest, he was able to report that he had purchased a quarter section of the best land in Mitchell County, and that after harvest we would all move again. If my mother resented this third removal, she made no comment which I can now recall. I suspect that she went rather willingly this time, for her brother David wrote that he had also located in Mitchell County, not two miles from the place my father had decided upon for our future home, and Samantha, her younger sister, had settled in Minnesota. The circle in Neshonic seemed about ready to break up. A mighty spreading and shifting was going on all over the West, 
and no doubt my mother accepted her part in it without a special protest. Our life in Burr Oak Township that summer was joyous for us children. It seems to have been almost all sunshine and play. As I reflect upon it, I relive many delightful excursions into the northern woods. It appears that Harriet and I were in continual harvest of nuts and berries. Our walks to school were explorations, and we spent nearly every Saturday and Sunday in minute study of the countryside, devouring everything which was remotely edible. We gorged upon May apples until we were ill, and munched upon black cherries until we were dizzy with their fumes. We clambered high trees to collect baskets of wild grapes, which our mother could not use, and we garnered nuts with the insatiable greed of squirrels. We ate oak shoots, fern roots, leaves, bark, seed balls, everything, not because we were hungry, but because we loved to experiment, and we came home only when hungry or worn out or in awe of the darkness. It was a delightful season full of the most satisfying companionship, and yet of the names of my playmates I can seize upon only two. The others have faded from the tablets of my memory. I remember Ned, who permitted me to hold his plow, and Perry, who taught me how to tame the half-wild colts that filled his father's pasture. Together we spent long days lassoing, or rather snaring, the feet of these horses, and subduing them to the halter. We had many fierce struggles, but came out of them all without a serious injury. Late in August, my father again loaded our household goods into wagons, and with our small herd of cattle following, set out toward the west, bound once again to overtake the actual line of the middle border. This journey has an unforgettable epic charm as I look back upon it. Each mile took us farther and farther into the unsettled prairie, until in the afternoon of the second day we came to a meadow so wide that its western rim touched the sky, without revealing a sign of man's habitation other than the road in which we traveled. The plain was covered with grass tall as ripe wheat, and when my father stopped his team and came back to us and said, Well, children, here we are, on the big prairie we looked about us with awe. So endless seemed the spread of wild oats and waving blue joint. Far away, dim clumps of trees showed, but no chimney was in sight, and no living thing moved save our own cattle and the hawks lazily wheeling in the air. My heart filled with awe as well as wonder. The majesty of this primeval world exalted me, I felt for the first time the poetry of the unplowed spaces. It seemed that the herds of deer and buffalo of our song might, at any moment, present themselves. But they did not, and my father took no account even of the marsh fowl. March forward, he shouted, and on we went. Hour after hour he pushed into the west, the heads of his tired horses hanging ever lower and on my mother's face the shadow deepened, but her chieftain's voice, cheerily urging his team, lost nothing of its clarion resolution. He was in his element. He loved this shelterless sweep of prairie. This westward march entranced him. 
I think he would have gladly kept on until the snowy wall of the rocky mountains met his eyes, for he was a natural explorer. Sunset came at last, but still he drove steadily on through the sparse settlements. Just at nightfall we came to a beautiful little stream and stopped to let the horses drink. I heard its rippling, reassuring song on the pebbles. Thereafter all is dim and vague to me until my mother called out sharply, Wake up, children! Here we are! Struggling to my feet, I looked about me. Nothing could be seen but the dim form of a small house. On every side the land melted away into blackness, silent and without boundary. Driving into the yard, father hastily unloaded one of the wagons, and taking mother and Harriet and Jessie, drove away to spend the night with Uncle David, who had preceded us, as I now learned, and was living on a farm not far away. My brother and I were left to camp as best we could with the hired man. Spreading a rude bed on the floor, he told us to hop in, and in ten minutes we were all fast asleep. The sound of a clattering poker awakened me next morning, and when I opened my sleepy eyes and looked out, a new world displayed itself before me. The cabin faced a level plain with no tree in sight. A mile away to the west stood a low stone house, and immediately in front of us opened a half-section of unfenced sod. To the north, as far as I could see, the land billowed like a russet ocean, with scarcely a roof to fleck its lonely spread. I cannot say that I liked or disliked it. I merely marveled at it, and while I wandered about the yard, the hired man scorched some cornmeal mush in a skillet, and this, with some butter and gingerbread, made up my first breakfast in Mitchell County. An hour or two later, father and mother and the girls returned, and the work of setting up the stove and getting the furniture in place began. In a very short time the experienced clock was voicing its contentment on a new shelf, and the kettle was singing busily on its familiar stove. Once more, and for the sixth time since her marriage, Belle Garland adjusted herself to a pioneer environment, comforted, no doubt, by the knowledge that David and Deborah were near, and that her father was coming soon. No doubt she also congratulated herself on the fact that she had not been carried beyond the Missouri River, and that her house was not surrounded by Indians who murder by night. A few hours later, while my brother and I were on the roof of the house with intent to peer over the edge of the prairie, something grandly significant happened. Upon a low hill to the west, a herd of horses suddenly appeared running swiftly, led by a beautiful sorrel pony with shining white mane. On they came, like a platoon of cavalry rushing down across the open sod which lay before our door. The leader moved with lofty and graceful action, easily outstretching all his fellows. Forward they swept, their long tails floating in the wind like banners, on in a great curve, as if scenting danger in the smoke of our fire. The thunder of their feet filled me with delight. Surely, next to a herd of buffaloes, this squadron of wild horses was the most satisfactory evidence of the wilderness into which we had been thrust. 
riding as if to intercept the leader, a solitary herder now appeared, mounted upon a horse which very evidently was the mate of the leader. He rode magnificently, and under him the lithe mare strove resolutely to overtake and head off the leader. All to no purpose. The halterless steeds of the prairie snorted derisively at their former companion, bridled and saddled, and carrying the weight of a master. Swiftly they thundered across the sod, dropped into a ravine, and disappeared in a cloud of dust. Silently we watched the rider turn and ride slowly homeward. The plain had become our new domain, the horseman our ideal. End of chapter 8